If you would remain standing for the reading of the word this morning, and you will find our text in uh, Matthew 4. If you would turn in your Bibles there, and if you must, on your electronic devices, if you must, clearly I have a preference, but it's okay, Doug. (laughs) Matthew chapter 4, first 11 verses. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, we have read your word, uh, but, but left to ourselves, we are not capable of understanding it or receiving it as you intended to its full extent. So enable us this morning to hear your word. Give us understanding, I pray, and give us hearts that would surrender to your word so that it might not just be a spoken thing, but that it would have your intended effect for your people to strengthen, to encourage, to rebuke, to instruct. We ask for all these things, and I pray that the meditations of my Minds and the words from my mouth would be pleasing to you this day. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. So, please be seated. There is something called the church year or the church calendar, which we do not adhere to at this church strictly, but we do follow it somewhat generally. That's why we have just come to the end of the season of Advent, which is kind of the beginning of the church year or the church calendar. And so the Advent looks forward to the coming of Christ, the Christmas celebrates the arrival of Christ, and then the tradition would hold that we would speak of the life, the teaching, the message, and then eventually the suffering, death, resurrection of Christ, all the way up through Christ's ascension. And so that would be, for that season of time, the focus of the emphasis of the teaching on the church. We do kind of follow that in a general way, general guidelines, at least around the holidays and for Christmas and Easter, but not strictly. Um... But this morning, I thought I would just hang on to Christmas a little longer. Not, not the birth of Jesus. We're going to move ahead a little bit from in his life. Uh, we're going to skip past his childhood. Uh, but we are going to come to Jesus at a time prior to his public ministry. This is still the preparation stage or what went on before Jesus makes himself known and begins to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But first, I want to tell you a story. There was a monk... And I tried to come up with a name befitting a monk, just nothing came to mind, so I'm just going to leave him nameless. There was a monk, and he was up early one morning out in the fields, just walking, praying on his own, thought some quiet time would do him some good, but he hears the bells up in the monastery, and it's time to return so that he can join with the rest of the monks for their morning prayers. 
And as he's walking along the trail, he comes across a small, apparently young bird that looks to be in bad condition. The bird is shivering in the cold. He's along the path. He's unprotected. And the monk thought, that's, that's a shame. That ought not be. So he's wearing his full monk regalia, got the robes on, and he picks up this little bird and he shoves it inside there, and thinking at the very least I'll keep him warm and dry while I walk along the path. Well, sure enough, the bird begins to revive. The bird begins to feel a little better, and the bird is much more uh, active. And the monk begins to think, I can't arrive back at the monastery like this with a flapping habit when we go to morning prayers. And so he begins to look for another solution. Now, I did check with my wife to make sure this was okay to say, but also up early that morning were the cows heading out to the pasture. And as the monk looks around for an alternative, he spies a fresh deposit from one of these cows. And you could say a lot of things about it, but it was warm, being fresh. So he took the bird out and he shoved him down inside this cow pie. And he went on his way, just content that he had done the right thing and that the bird would be all right. And sure enough, the bird begins to, continues to feel better. And so he goes from moving around, feeling all comfortable there, to singing out as birds are wont to do as the sun is rising. But as he sings out, then he begins to attract the attention of a fox walking by. And this fox thinking, hey, great start to the day. I've got my breakfast, pounces on this bird and snatches him up in one mouthful. But as you can imagine, he got more than bird in a mouthful because of the bird's location. And so he began to cough and sputter and he spit out the little bird and the bird by then was very much awake and alive and he fluttered off and found new, new surroundings and so he was safe. So young people don't worry, the bird was safe. But from this we get two morals, two morals to our story. The first one being, when you find yourself in adverse circumstances, or up to here, don't assume the one that put you there is your enemy. And when, and when you find yourself in adverse circumstances, don't assume the one that offers to help you out is your friend. Okay, I like that. That brings us to the story we've read this morning. The story we've read this morning, beginning in verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God put him there. God put him in these adverse circumstances. And yet the one who comes along to offer to help him out is the adversary of God, the opponent of God, the, the, the one who opposes all God's goodness and God's people. So we do not assume the one who put us there is our enemy. We don't assume the one who offers to help us out is our friend. And so Jesus, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, looks bad. He's in a bad situation. I need to clarify just a couple things before we move on. Notice that God is not the one tempting, for the Bible clearly tells us in James 1.13 that God is not tempted and God does not tempt. But that does not mean God does not lead his people sometimes through dark places for a purpose. The devil here is the one identified as the tempter. Notice that he can only do what God allows him to do, or he can only serve the purposes of God, as it's God who sent Jesus there. But the devil is the tempter. The devil is the one who bears the responsibility here for trying to tempt Jesus. So God does not tempt, however, he does test he doesn't test us in the sense that he's trying to trip us up. And this is making a lot of bad noise, is it not? I'm hearing a lot of banging. 
See, I think I'm moving around too much. Sam, could we go back to this? I don't want this to be a distraction, and it is to me. Sorry. So God does not tempt, but God does test. He does not test to trip his people up or cause them to fail. But he does test in the sense that he's rather, he is out to strengthen them. He is out to teach them. He is out to prepare them for something, maybe for something coming on. Even of Jesus, Jesus himself, the perfect God-man, the Bible speaks of as if he learned something. He grew in some way. In Hebrews 5, it says that he was tempted in all things, but that through his suffering, he learned obedience. And having been made perfect, he was qualified then to be our great high priest. And so even Christ himself was developed somehow by times of testing, like what we see today. So God does not tempt, but he does test. He sometimes leads us through dark places for his purposes. You remember the story of Job, do you not? Job was wealthy. Job was at ease. In fact, I think, at least in the King James Version, when it describes Job's situation, at one point he's speaking, he said, I was at ease. I wasn't looking for trouble. I wasn't looking for anything in particular. God was good. I was blessed, a healthy family, great riches. He was just at ease. And what does God do? When Satan shows up in the heavenly court there, God says, have you considered Job? God puts his finger on Job. God uses Job in somehow in this, this, this battle between, you know, between good and bad. So he leads Job into this situation. I don't understand all of God's purposes, but it's clear that God does this. God incited David to take a census, even though taking a census was sin. But God had it out to teach his people a lesson or to punish them for a sin that they might be purified. Okay. In Psalm 23, which everybody loves for its comfort. Okay, but where does the comfort come? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. God takes his people in dark places sometimes for his purposes. But it is not a tempting because it goes on immediately to say in the psalm, For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He tests, he teaches, he develops, he strengthens, and he prepares. And that is what is going on here. That is what is going on here in our text. Christ has not yet made himself public as far as ministry goes. He has been baptized. Uh, in fact, he's been baptized where even the Spirit descended on him and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So he's been announced but now he's through this time of testing before he goes out and begins to teach and preach about the kingdom of heaven. So I want to look at our text twice, but don't be too scared. I'm aware of the time limits. Uh, the first time we're going to look at it through kind of a narrow lens. We're going to take a kind of a snapshot of what's going on right here and now as far as this is unfolding. And so we will look at the individual temptations and then we will look at kind of the broader lens and put its broader lens and put it in the context of scripture as a whole. So first, narrow lens. Let's look at temptation number one. Temptation number one. Uh, I'll begin in verse two. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now right off the bat, this, the devil saying, If you are the Son of God, in the original language, this is just a way of saying, Since you are the Son of God. He's not doubting Jesus' identity here. Jesus was just baptized. There was a voice from heaven saying, This is my Son. 
Satan is under no illusions as to the identity of who he is dealing with here. So since you're the son of God, but see, this is rather a challenge to Jesus. It's a challenge to Jesus, not related to his identity, but regarding his situation. And I truly believe what Satan's doing here is to try to get him to doubt the goodness of God. He's saying, Jesus, look at you, son of God. Aren't you hungry? Who put you here? Did, is the one who put you here your enemy? Are your loyalties misplaced? I think this is what Satan's up to. I think the root temptation is, you being the son of God, why should you be hungry? Why should you suffer lack or want? The root temptation is questioning the goodness of God. Because if Satan can get you to doubt the goodness of God, then you're in a very dangerous place. And this is similar. I, I love it when these bulletins come together, by the way. All I gave to Minda was the title of a sermon in the text. You know, she works on it. Minda makes suggestions. Melinda makes suggestions for songs. Zach and Seth kind of go through it and everything. I love the way it comes together. We read about the garden this morning. I didn't ask for that. But back in the garden, I think the root sin, the first sin, the first temptation where Adam and Eve failed was when Satan got him to doubt the goodness of God. He said, did Jesus, did, did God tell you not to touch the trees in this, in this garden? No, 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 no. No, he said we could touch them, we just can't have that one. Why can't you have that one? Well, he said, he, he, he just told us to trust us. He said, in, in the day we touch that one, we'll die. You know? And Satan said, you won't die. You won't die. But God knows that in that day that you eat that, your eyes will be opened, and you will know. In other words, you'll be able to decide for yourself. You will have wisdom. You won't have to be a dependent creature anymore. Doubting in the goodness of God. And Adam and Eve chose poorly. They chose poorly. They thought, I can decide for myself. I know better than God. And how'd that turn out? I think some of the saddest words are in the Bible. When God shows up and what's the first thing they did was they hid from shame. Their eyes were opened. Was it the paradise they were promised? No. No. Sin is often like that. It, it, it's tempt, it's, it looks good. It's enticing. But as soon as we have a bite of it, it reveals itself for what it is, and it's rotten to the core. And it starts when we are challenged to doubt the goodness of God. This is, in this case, he's asking Jesus, as he asked Adam and Eve, why would God withhold this from you? Fill in the blank there for yourself. Why would God withhold what from you? You've never doubted in God's goodness? Why would God not give me this? Why would God cause me to suffer what? What? You ever been there? I have. I have become more convinced in the past year or so <laughs> That this is almost one of the, the, the roots of the faith, is our view of the goodness of God. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Having done this, how will he withhold from us any good thing? But we are tempted, as Jesus was tempted here, to doubt the goodness of God. We were tempted to make ourselves independent creatures. But that doesn't work. That doesn't line up with reality. 
We are not independent creatures. We are dependent on the God who made us, the one and only independent one. And he made us for a purpose, which includes dependency on him. And so when we insist on our own way, when we insist on being the arbiters or the deciders of what is good and bad for me, things tend to break down because it is not keeping with reality. So I have not always chosen well. I don't know about you. There's some good people here. Better people than me. But I have not always chosen well. Jesus chose well. Jesus chose well. Jesus quotes the scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Now, the, the context of this verse, the context of this verse when he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In the context of Deuteronomy, this was the people. This is the people of Israel have been brought out of Egypt and are now wandering around in the wilderness. And they come and they grumble concerning food. And so God gives them manna from heaven. But later on, a couple of chapters, chapter 8, he reminds them that why did he lead them into this hunger? So that they would come to God and so that God could satisfy their need. He did it to teach them the lesson that man doesn't live on bread alone. But they live looking to the bread giver. We don't live on bread alone. We live on everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so if Jesus, Jesus in his thinking is God brought me here. God will provide for me here, and he knows my needs. And so there's this whole attitude of trust and submission to the will of God rather than insisting upon his own way and his own thinking about what is good and bad for himself. So Israel, again, did not, did not respond well. We see in Israel a failure over and over and over in the wilderness wanderings to trust God who had redeemed him out of Egypt. And I'm afraid we are often more like them than we are like our Savior. But our Savior succeeded in this way where they did not. And so we see in Jesus from this first temptation, we just see his dependence upon the goodness of God. He learned his lesson well. Later on in John chapter 4, during his public ministry, he said, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. He learned his lesson well. This takes us to temptation number two. Temptation number two, you'll see in verses five through seven, this is where the devil takes him to the holy city, stands him on the top of the temple, and says, if or since you are the son of God, see, you're special, <laughs> you're special, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This one's, I find interesting, Satan quotes correctly. Satan is not here twisting the meaning of the scriptures. He goes to Psalm 91, from which he takes this quote, and this is a psalm of God's protection and preservation for his people, for those who trust in him. It says, when you find yourself in a dark space, I will be with you there. When you are surrounded by enemies, you shall not fear, for I am with you there, and I will deliver you out of all of it. This is that psalm. He will bear you up so you don't strike your foot against a stone. But the challenge here to Jesus in this one, in this properly quoted verse, the challenge here is to tempt him to a sin of presumption because while he quoted it properly as to its meaning, he, he did it wrongly as to its application. When we look here, the picture given to us from this psalm, on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, really gives us a picture of stumbling. So this is somebody walking along in the way and stubbing their foot on a rock or so, and, and being caused to stumble 
head first into injury or harm. But there's a big, there's a far cry, a great difference between stumbling and leaping. Because he challenged Jesus, go ahead, throw yourself down. And this has the effect of trying to force God's hand. And this is called the sin of presumption. This distorts the promise of God. It reverses the order in our relationship to God. It attempts to make God a genie in the lamp to do our bidding. And it actually can be a form of rebellion against him while seeming to demonstrate a great faith. But this thing is sin. This is, this is not Jesus relying on the promises of God that where God leads me, even if I stumble, he's got my back. No, this is you putting God to the test. This is you saying, I will do this and I can do anything I want because he'll rescue me from it. No, that's a disordering. That's a disordering of the relationship. God is not our genie in the bottle. Now, again, I know we have a room full of good people. You've never done this, right? You've never dealt with this temptation, right? Yeah. Yeah, Lord, if, if only you'll do this for me, I will serve you. Or you go off and do something foolish, just, just saying, that's okay, God will straighten it out. Okay, that's the sin of presumption. Jesus is tempted here to the sin of presumption. But what does he do in response? He quotes a scripture. He quotes a scripture. He goes back to Deuteronomy 6.16, and he says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not test the Lord. If you read the rest of that passage, it says, Do not test the Lord as Israel did at Massah. And Massah was a place when they were thirsty in the wilderness. And they came to him and says, give us water. They came demanding. And this is one of those times, too, when if you go back and read, they all talk about, we were better off in Egypt. Okay, they put the Lord to the test. We demand you satisfy this need in the way we want you to. So they put the Lord to the test. And Jesus quotes it properly. Do not put the Lord to the test. We do not act to force God's hand, but we humbly trust and obey when he leads, even in the way of affliction which I know is hard. You know, I say these things. I'm no super Christian. I know it's hard. But even when God leads in the way of affliction, we do not force his hand. We are the dependent creatures. He is the good God. And we cannot claim these promises without obeying the commands. But, all, but at its root, it's about our relationship. We walk where he leads. We trust in his goodness. And then, yes, we can have a confidence that he will bear us up. But we do not force his hand. We are not the ones in charge in this relationship. And so we come to temptation number three. Temptation number three. In verses 8 through 10, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. I think this one's less tricky. Okay. This, is, this is outright bribery. Satan resorts to an outright bribery, which is amplified by the lack of a cross. This is a shortcut on the table now. This is a compromise. You know, I mean, ultimately, Jesus is still going to receive a kingdom, right? God had already promised Jesus the reward. Psalm 2, he said, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. But then he also said in Isaiah 53, but the road there leads through the cross. If you will give your life for my people, you will be exalted and raised up. 
King of kings, Lord of lords. Okay, so this was the same offer. Jesus was going to end up in the same place, supposedly. There's a question about, does Satan have this to offer? Okay. But it was offering of the kingdom without the cross. A shortcut, a compromise. And i got to ask again, can you relate to this temptation? You ever been tempted to make a compromise? You ever been tempted to cut a corner to avoid a loss or to gain a reward, an honor, a position, or even just to save face? And at that moment, are you serving God's will? Or are you trying to get the reward and avoid a cross? Then there's the question about can Satan even give these things? Can he give a kingdom? Yes, maybe. Can he? He is called in the Bible the God of this age. He is referred to as the ruler of this world. So you'd have to assume that he has a certain authority or certain access to things that he can, he can do, he can give, at least for a time. But that really is kind of the key. Because even if he offers, even if he gives, it really at the most is only temporary because God has already given the kingdom to his son. God has already declared the end from the beginning. And the Satan and all of Satan's works will meet their end. So be careful that when we are tempted, you know, to compromise, cut a corner, avoid a loss, receive a reward, have care that we don't make these decisions based on this life only, because the devil's time is limited as well. But against this temptation, you know, we can't make light of what it meant to try to avoid the cross. And this was one of Jesus' greatest desires, was it not? In his last week, what did he pray in the garden? Lord, if possible, take this cup from me, this cup of God's wrath that he was being forced to drink, forced to drink. He willingly gave himself, but God sent him to drink this cup. Lord, please take it from me. Don't force this on me. Don't, don't, don't cause me to drink this. But what's he say? Not my will, but thine be done. So Jesus here, in response to this temptation, again quotes a scripture, and he takes us back to Deuteronomy 6 again, but down in verse 13. Worship God and serve him only. Worship God and serve him only. I think there are some of us who, who, you know, not many of us are going to make a deal with the devil, right? Not many of us are going to just do the outright lie, the outright cheating, whatever. The devil promised me this, you know. We're not, but I sometimes think we think we can have it both ways. Whether it be the compromise or whatever, you know, but the end is good. I'll receive the position, I'll get the place of power, I will have the riches, and I will do good things with them. So what's it matter how I get there? Well, you've made a deal with the devil. And Jesus quotes the scripture saying, worship God and serve him only. And later on in his own teaching, he applies this in different ways. He says it's impossible to serve two masters. You can't have both. There is one God, one independent, self-sufficient, all-powerful and good God, and you are to serve him and him alone. Friendship with the world is hatred towards him. You can't have God and mammon. We come to the end of our three temptations, and we go down to verse... 10, right before Jesus quotes this scripture, he says to Satan, go, Satan. This is a command with great force. And you notice how he responds to the devil. He left him. (laughs) 
There was no argument here. Jesus said, go, Satan, because we worship God and serve him only. And so the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. See, God had not abandoned his son. And when the time of testing was over, when that season came to an end, he sent his angels to minister to him, to bear them up, to fulfill the Psalm 91. So God is not a liar. So he commands Satan to leave. The time of testing is over, and that is a reminder to us that these seasons do come to an end. God does not give you more than you can bear. Now, at the end of our temptations, we come to the first of what I would call two sufficiencies that we can get from this passage, two sufficiencies. And the first one, I would hope at this point, would be obvious, and I almost decided to just stop right here and make this the end of the sermon. The first sufficiency is the written word of God is everything you need. Jesus, by example, uh, at great cost to himself, through the valley of the shadow, through temptation or in combat with the enemy of God and God's people, relied on the word of God. The word is everything you need for faith and practice. What a tool. What a tool. What a weapon. What a treasure. You know, if Jesus were in our time, I wonder what he would do. Maybe he would turn on the TV for the latest popular TV preacher. With their, with their, you know, four steps on resisting temptation. But he went to the word. Sufficient for him should be sufficient for us. I was reminded of a song which I was going to have my boys play this morning before I came. And I don't remember the words exactly, so let me paraphrase by a lady named Sarah Grove. All this time, I try to help myself while my Bible sits upon my shelf. We run around to conferences. We run around to the latest, the latest popular preacher. We're looking for self-help. We're looking for pointers. We're looking for PowerPoint presentations, whatever. And all the time, God has spoken, and it is, it is available to you. It is in your hands. And we make so little of it. We downplay this extraordinary means that God has given and we treat it as so ordinary, and yet it's sufficient for our Savior in his time of testing. If, if you are one to make New Year's resolutions, read your Bible. Take it off your shelf and learn it. And I don't just mean quote it, I mean learn it, meditate on it. And you will find it as reliable as Jesus did. You will find the promises of God are true and trustworthy. You will find that Scripture is a tool and a weapon in itself. It interprets itself. It reveals its depth of meaning to it. It is a treasure, and we treat it as common. You will not go wrong by putting more and more time and effort into the study of Scripture. And that is our first sufficiency. It is sufficient for you. But... I don't want to just end there because there are, we, we have this attitude sometimes where, where these sermons become nothing more than, well, Jesus set an example for you to follow, and so you just need to try harder and you go, go do this thing. And I'm not preaching self-reliance in this, okay? The Bible speaks to us like it does because sometimes we need a good kick in the pants, and so it reminds us of what is valuable and what it is we should pursue, the Bible does teach that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's great effort required there. 
The Bible does tell us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The Bible tells us we are to fight the good fight. Do you see the emphasis? Do you see the effort required to do all those things? So sometimes the Bible is just speaking in a way that that just gives us the kick in the pants we need to keep going. But it does not teach self-reliance. And that brings us to our second sufficiency that we see from this passage. And here's we see from this passage as a whole. And now we shift from this narrow lens to this wider lens. We look at this in the context of Scripture as a whole. Because our second sufficiency is the work of Christ for us. The fact is, no matter how much I recommit myself to the study of the Word, I'm still lazy. No matter how much I recommit myself to the service of God's people, or to walking in a manner worthy of the gospel and witnessing to my neighbor, I'm still self-absorbed, self-centered, and just plain lazy. See, I'm saying that redundantly because it's true. (laughs) I just, I am. But it is not about me, ultimately. Ultimately, we have a champion. Christ is our champion. This right here is an example at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry where he acts as our champion in representative combat. Now, you know the story of David and Goliath where there were two armies side by side, and they decided, hey, instead of everybody killing everybody, let's just pick one man from each side, and let's let them fight it out. And the stakes right there were simply servitude. So whoever won, then the other side's army would become servants, right? And so David is sent forth as the champion of God's people. And the stakes were servitude. And thank goodness David won. (laughs) But David is only the son of David, pointing to the son of David who was to come. David goes on and lives a life in many ways admirable, but stumbling in many sinful and bad ways. David is not the son of David we're waiting for. He is not the champion we're waiting for. But now Christ has come. Christ is the champion that we have been waiting for. And at stake then for David was simply the servitude, and at stake now is redemption. If Satan could attack, if Satan could short-circuit the plan of God, if he could tempt Jesus to sin and was successful, then redemption is wiped out. But Christ is our champion, and in this representative combat, Christ has come out victorious. At the end of this, when he says, Be gone, Satan, it is his to command. And Satan leaves until an opportune time. This is not the end of the battle, but this certainly is a prefiguring of the victory to come. Christ is our champion. Now, if you look back through this text that we've looked at today, you see, as we've noticed, shades of the Garden of Eden. And we see where Adam failed. Adam failed. Adam was in paradise. Adam had everything going in his favor. He was in comfort. He knew God face to face, and Adam failed. And Christ, with the, object, with, the, with the odds stacked against him in the wilderness, starving from hunger, wins a victory. He is the second Adam, we learn in Romans. Where the first Adam failed and sin came into the world, the second Adam is victorious. And as we sang in joy to the world, he came to make it known as far as the curse is found, to roll back all the effects of our failure, of our sins, of our weaknesses. He is the champion that God has provided to meet the need that we couldn't, to fix what we had broken, to be for us what we could not be. So Adam failed. Where Israel failed, he kept going back and forth to Israel in the wilderness. Israel failed. Israel tested God. Israel questioned God. Israel grumbled against God. And if we're going to be honest, that's us. 
Even as God's people, in light of God's goodness displayed in the, in the death and resurrection of his son, that's us. And yet Christ is our champion. Where Israel failed, Jesus stood strong. Where Israel doubted the goodness of God, Jesus trusted in the goodness of God. Even in the light of this great adversity, he himself has entered into the strong man's house and bound him by this victory that he might carry away captives. He himself, in 1 John 3, said he come to destroy the works of the devil. And this is the beginning of that combat, and Jesus is our champion. Yes, he calls us to follow him. He shows us, by example, how we are to succeed. But he himself, like a good leader, goes before us. He leads the way. He provides the way. He himself is the way. The way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. But thank God, he has come. And he is our champion. And though the seed of the serpent comes again and thinks he's won a victory, strikes him on the heel, conspires to put him to death. Yet, God raises him from the dead and crushes the serpent's head, and he will come again. He raises him up in glory and power and victory. He is our champion. So it's not self-reliant. Yes, it's work. It's effort. Okay, but the reliance is on our Savior, who has also provided the way, shown the way, is the way. He is our champion. And so what is your response to this, church? What is your response to be? I think it should be obvious. Rejoice. The way, the path to the celestial city has been cleared of all obstacles because Christ has led you there. He has made a way for you there. Rejoice. Worship. And follow. It's that simple. Trusting in the goodness of God. What else does he have to do? Let's pray.